Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox censoring the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how are you, sir? Good. I'm glad to be talking about numbers with you this week. There's a lot to talk about, so maybe that's all I should say. Yeah, too much, I think. Once again, we are in a week where we have to cover a whole book. And, uh, you know, the Come Follow Me manual doing what it's got to do is focusing on just a few chapters. As, uh, you know, there's a lot of chapters and verses that are mostly informational, things that we can't possibly cover in the span of, you know, one lesson. So um, the Come Follow Me manual just selected a few parts to cover, a few chapters. It looks like 11 to 14 and 20 to 24. So altogether about nine chapters. And I think it's a good selection of chapters, but uh, in the event that we want to go outside of these chapters, we will let you know, but try to keep things focused on the uh, chapters in question. So before we go ahead and launch into that, just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So like we said, we are in the book of numbers today. And uh, yeah, numbers. So it, it's it's basically going to cover the time from Mount Sinai to being on the verge of entering the promised land. So we're basically covering the entire time or the rest of the time in the wilderness from Mount Sinai. And again, the Come Follow Me lesson or manual will not be covering the whole uh, book of Numbers. And try as we might, neither will we. These episodes can only be about an hour long, and we've already gone well over that hour mark for at least these last two or three episodes. I, I don't know how many it's been. Yeah, James putting me on a limit. Well... It's a podcast. Most people are listening to this on a commute. So we only (laughs) got about an hour anyway, and we do want to be sensitive to that. But anyway, um, what we got in numbers is primarily God's people learning to trust God on the daily, like the whole purpose of the wilderness. And uh, we've spoken about the wilderness on the show before. The whole purpose of the wilderness has seemed to have been an unlearning process. Um, an unlearning of a previous way of life and a learning of a new uh, way of life, a, a new life in God. Like God is teaching them to walk by faith from their deliverance to their destiny as heirs of the Abrahamic covenant in the promised land. And they obediently followed God through the wilderness, but they also consistently displayed a lack of faith as well. And we're going to see this a lot in some of the chapters highlighted by the Come Follow Me manual and talk about them when we get there, especially these uh, troublesome moments in uh, chapters 13 and 14. Uh, But basically, we're going to see more faithless action by the children of Israel, and that's going to end up condemning them to die in the wilderness, which is pretty ironic considering the children of Israel have said it would be better for us to have died in the wilderness, some stuff like that. And... uh, We're going to see it happen because of their faithlessness. And then the rest of the book of Numbers is going to center on the next generation of Israelites who do learn to walk in faith so that they could realize the destiny their parents had failed to to gain. God's blessings in the promised land that was prepared for them. Overall, one of the biggest lessons of the book of Numbers to me seems to be that faith is a 
big key, if not the key, to uh, securing God's promises. So if you haven't already started reading the book of Numbers, just be looking for evidence of that as you uh, read these uh, chapters highlighted by the Come Follow Me manual. Uh, Brother Derek, do you got anything to add by way of introduction or preparation for? Yeah, I do. So the first thing to remember about the book of Numbers is that it's a book you can count on. (laughs) Wow. Wow. (laughs) Since we're on the topic, Derek, do you want to say anything about why this is called the book of Numbers, maybe alluding to the first 10 chapters of the book? Right. So there is uh, the procedure for a census, and there's a number of censuses throughout throughout the text, but essentially numbering the children of Israel is the important part of, and that's how the book of Numbers get its name in, in English. However, in Hebrew, the title of the book is Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness, which really encapsulates the entirety of the book is the wandering in, in the wilderness, which is a very formative event for the children of Israel. Big so time. much you talked about like leadership and trusting God, but another big piece of this is what kind of people are we going to be? It's a lot about community identity formation, uh, struggling with what kind of people we're going to be. Are we going to be a holy people? Are we going to be a fearful people? Are we going to be a faithful people are how are we going to relate to our leaders and so many of these questions get brought up in this text in a very powerful way and unfortunately some of my favorite texts like the the story of Pesach Sheni which is the second Passover or the daughters of Zelophehad are left out of the reading for come follow me but i'm going to talk about them anyway because i think they're so important yeah speaking of definitely. the wilderness what I was just agreeing with you. Oh, okay. Speaking of the wilderness, uh, James and I did a guest episode with the Bristlecone Firesides. Is that what they're called? Yeah, Bristlecone Firesides, also a member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. So check out our episode with them, however you find them. I don't know how you find them or which episode it is, but we did one where we talked about wilderness experiences and Jesus in the wilderness the temptation narratives in Matthew and Luke, and how those recapitulate and riff on the story. Instead of 40 years, you've got 40 days. You've got Jesus faced uh, with temptations, and he overcame the temptations that the Israelites uh, failed on. And he, in fact, he quotes scriptures, and he quotes scriptures from the wilderness narratives here uh, in Deuteronomy. Uh, well, anyway, so let's get back to this. I also wanted to name for people that I was a guest on the Latter-day Faith podcast with Dan Watherspoon. So check out his most recent episode there, and you'll see me intro. Uh, I'm one of the introductory segments to that, and I'm talking about God and gender and our concept of a gendered or not God. Mm. Um, I should also know name that that this is our first episode we're recording in May, and this is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month in the United States. So that mm. is something to think about. It is not uh, some um, this is not a topic that I'm an expert on, but I think it's important to name that, and maybe we can come back to that in some way because racial issues are not just about black folks. We've got 
so many other ways uh, and so many other intersections that can happen, and those also need to be uh, engaged thoughtfully. Yes, sir. I want to also say a couple of things. Number one is Rabbi Benet Lappy talks about donkey stories, and she says that queer readings of the scripture are a lot like Imagine if donkeys read Torah. If donkeys read Torah, what would they notice? What would they find significant? They would read through the whole Torah and like, yeah, here it is. But every time a donkey appears in the scriptures, they'd be like, yes, there's me. There's one of me. There I am. There I am in this text, right? You have this, um, I'm thinking of the excited donkey like in Shrek being so excited to see, oh, look, there's me. And I think <laughs> we who are queer will end up finding ourselves in the scripture and get real excited and those will be the most meaningful pieces and by queer i don't mean that it has to be sexually queer right we don't need to have gay sex in the narrative to find transgression of gender roles to find transgression of social norms to find people who speak up to find um, anything that resonates with the queer experience when uh, translated across these cultures and centuries, we find ourselves, there are queer figures in the scriptures, and we'll get some of these in today's, uh, today's lesson. I also wanted to talk a little bit about a new thing that I've never taught before, and it's my dermatology analogy. So I am not a dermatologist, and that actually will come in very helpful for this analogy, in that apparently so much of dermatology is in differential diagnosis. Like so many different underlying causes can end up with similar uh, surface presentations. For example, if there is an injury or irritation or itching or some type of infection or rash or something, one thing the body can do is put more blood to that area so that the blood will help heal that area and you'll get the antibodies or however that all works. So you'll end up with redness and rash as a symptom of so many different things, whether it's viral or bacterial or fungal or, or an injury or a burn or whatever, so many underlying things in dermatology will have different causes and, and superficially similar uh, presentations. And so where am I going with this? I want to name that a similar thing happens in Scripture. If you do not read thoughtfully and carefully and you examine people's lives, you will often misdiagnose what happens. And one of the best examples is in Luke chapter 1, where you have two very clear enunciations. You have one to the father of John the Baptist, Zechariah, and you have one to Mary. In both cases, an angel shows up and says, surprise, you're going to have a baby. And in both cases, they say, how's this going to happen? And Zachariah says, well, how's this going to happen? I'm so old. And Mary says, how's this going to happen? I, I've not had intercourse with a man. And guess what? The same outward words. It's, it's very similar what they say. It's not exactly the same in Greek. But it's similar enough that you're wondering, like, well, are they both coming from faith? Are they both coming from doubt? And so similar words. One is coming from a stance of trust and curiosity and faith, as you see in the case of Mary, and very similar words are coming from a place of doubt and skepticism and lack of trust in God. And I think a very similar thing is happens when we 
who are members of the church put forth our desire to seek more revelation on something and say, hey, you know what? We're getting this wrong. What you're doing is not good, in the words of Jethro. Some people will say, oh, that sounds exactly like what the apostates say and what the heretics say and what the people who are anti-church say. And on the surface, it might be, but you are running afoul of the dermatology fallacy of looking at just the surface and not getting in touch with the spirit of the person that's asking. And I think when you do that, so many things will fall into place when you look at the book of Numbers, and we'll get there. Um, we will we will see examples. And I just want to name that I have a little bit of a problem in the selection of certain chapters because that is a conscious choice. There are biases that go into place that leave out two of the times where Moses was accountable to the people and mm. got revelation because people who were affected by the situation involved took it to the prophet and said, you've got you've to do something about this. And those two stories are left out of the reading. And, in, and what's included in the reading is the course where Aaron and Miriam uh, apparently criticize Moses. And then I can see very easily how this can be used to say, oh, look, here's people. Miriam criticized the prophet of the Lord, and mm. now she got punished for criticizing him. But they don't look at the context, first yes, of all. the context. We'll get Why there. did they criticize him? Do we want to talk about that now, or do you got more prefatory things to say? Yeah, I've got some more prefatory things to say, but I'll just give a hint, a teaser of saying what Miriam was doing was not holding Moses accountable to some commandment. It was some other thing that seems to be irrelevant. And in these other cases, um, which, well, anyway, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, Okay. But um, it is not—my point is, if you just hold out this, uh, this one narrative from, from Numbers chapter 12, you will be very easily led into this idea of, oh, no, it's wrong to criticize the prophet in all circumstances for any reason, whatever. And that's not the case at all. There are many times where it is appropriate to give the prophet feedback— from your own experience. And there is there are cases where women have come to Moses and held him accountable, like in uh, Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 through 26, where Zipporah comes and says, you know what, Moses, you didn't circumcise your son. I'm going to step in and do it because you didn't do it. Right? That is, is faith. Yeah. So to say that all criticism of leaders is, is from a lack of faith or from a doubting of God or from a sense of betrayal or, or, or rebellion, is that's not the case. And anyone who does that is using the, the text uh, and misusing the text in a very abusive manner. So I want everyone to take the whole uh, set of data into, into, uh, into account as we go through these texts. Okay, so let me just go through. Are we ready to go through the text now? Well, let me just go ahead and add an amen to what you just said. Oh, okay. Um, because this is something that happens regularly in the church, I feel like, where people will uh, will misunderstand why people might take an issue with the brethren. And I feel like a big difference between people like us and the children of Israel, it, like most cases, the children of Israel, because I don't want to include Zipporah in that. I don't want to include the daughters of Salafahad in that. 
Um, most of the complaints of the children of Israel that we focus on are uh, brought on by a lack of faith. Um, mm-hmm. They are mm-hmm. not an effort to hold the prophet accountable so much as they are instances of lack of faith. Uh, that is the difference that I see between the daughters of Zelophehad and, uh, or better yet, Zipporah and the children of Israel when they complained about, uh, you know, the impure water, or as we're going to see later in this uh, reading, you know, when they complain about the menu, for lack of a better word, just Mm -hmm. there is a difference between complaints that are brought up in faith or criticisms that are brought up in faith and ones that are brought up in faithlessness. Like not every disagreement with the Lord's anointed is a product of faithlessness. In fact, many other times they are products of faith. And we have to be able to acknowledge that before we just go ahead and, you know, as you said, utterly dismiss every person Mm -hmm. that ever criticizes or complains against or even disagrees with one of the Lord's anointed as an apostate or as a heretic or as somebody who is living a life that is either not holy, not sacred, or not consecrated in some way. I don't know. But I just wanted to make sure I said that much and echoed that much before we proceeded. Yes. Um, okay, so let's proceed, and we're going to get into the the Sota ritual, which is the word for a woman who is uh, suspected of adultery uh, in Numbers chapter 5. And I just want to name that we're getting this within the week that we had some news coming out of our Supreme Court. There is a draft opinion in the United States uh, – I'm I'm not going to I shouldn't assume that all of our listeners are in the United States. So in the United States our Supreme Court um is is in the process of deciding a case that could overturn Roe versus Wade and we had a leaked uh, draft opinion that was made public that looks like it will overturn this and this is a significant threat to reproductive justice in this country. And so we're getting this uh, reading uh, from Numbers 5 in this context. Yeah, anything you want to say about that? Are we going to go right into the uh, reading for Numbers 5? I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I, can, I don't have anything I, immediately that I want to say about, about okay. that other than, you know. Okay. So, and I want to I want to make this quick. Because there, there's there's so much we could say. Essentially what happens is that, first of all, in cases of adultery, uh, to, to stone an adulterer or an adulteress, uh, one needs to have two witnesses to the, same, uh, to the same fact. If you do not have two witnesses but there is suspicion of adultery, then this is the procedure that happens. We have the priest uh, takes water and dust from from the floor of the tabernacle and makes this bitter water into a potion and then this bitter water is given to the woman and in the case that she is guilty the lord will cause her her belly to swell and cause a miscarriage and in the case that she is innocent she will not uh, that will not take place and here we get to one of the toughest parts of the Bible is we've got um, 
we've got we've got we've got some mess. We've got some things that Phyllis Tribble could call texts of terror. And so I'm not saying, oh, look, this is a great example of and I'm not saying uh, I mean, this is not a great example of, oh, look, this is how women should be treated. I'm not holding this up as an example of what we should do. And I'm also not saying, oh, gotcha, here's an example of where a pregnancy is terminated by God. And look, therefore, abortion is okay. I'm not saying that as a gotcha. What I am saying is, this text in some way points out the hypocrisy of Bible-believing individuals who think that unborn life is absolutely sacred and never can be taken away, and then uh, then this— and then they they're not they're hypocritically taking this text uh not taking this text i don't know if that makes any sense sorry everyone that i did not prepare my thoughts very well but there is a couple of things i want to name that i've drawn from uh feminist interpreters of this text including sarah levine and she says uh what's interesting about this is that the the decision about this woman's guilt or innocence is not in the fate of her husband. It's not in the fate of a, a council of men. It is not in the fate, uh, fate of a male priest. It is actually up to God. And God is the one, not any mob of, of vigilante justice type things, Will be the one. Will be the one to to um, exonerate her, right? And so I think that is one thing that needs to be named. Let me quote directly from Sarah Levine. She writes, okay. "Rabbi Toba Spitzer points out that the text, with all its difficulties, must be seen as taking responsibility for male jealousy as a societal problem, and for introducing a societal mechanism for its resolution." Whereas today, men kill women in jealous rages, all of which the media represent as normative. In the biblical period, jealousy was not an individual problem to be solved by an individual man in whatever way he saw fit. The biblical text attempted to deal with an otherwise impossible problem that could have worked out, worked itself out in more dangerous and painful ways. So in this case, we get the um, her innocence or guilt established beyond a shadow of a doubt by God, um, and God is not gendered or does not need to be gendered as male when we read this text. So I just want to name that, um, and obviously this doesn't solve all the problems. I'm not trying to solve all the problems with this text, and I think part of the, the challenge of a text is... Um, when we read the scriptures, we do have to like find the treasure where it is, and then there are challenging things all mixed together. It's it's like real life. You're gonna have it's like people. Like the, your favorite people are gonna have problematic stuff mixed in, and the most problematic people will have good stuff mixed in. And I think engaging with the scriptures in a thoughtful way will definitely help us to. Whoa, we're at 24 minutes. Oh dear. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so let me just uh just name that. And then I'm going to move on. Oh dear, this is a big mess. 
Bigness. Relax, dude. We can go right to... Do you have more things you want to say before we get to chapter 11? I do. Yes. So I just want to name something uh, about the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6. And this is a, this is a, um, something I learned from the queer biblical commentary is that it emphasizes this Nazarite vow is self-identified. Um, it's not something that, that's chosen by someone else. It's not something that's imposed on you. It's not something that you have to ask for permission for. Anyone can say, you know what, I'm called to do this. Uh, we always talk about, well, no one gets a calling in the church of their own, you know, right? Um, no one gets authority from, from, from themselves. In this case, you do. You get to choose this particular vow and take it on to give yourself, and men and women, people of all genders, uh, were, were available to, or were open, uh, or I mean saying the Nazarite vow was available to people of all genders, men and women. So I just want to name that, that this is sort of an egalitarian feature of the text that says, you know what, we have power on the bottom. We have power to name some aspects of our own lives. So that's all I'm going to say about Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 9, this second Passover story, let me just read... I, this is so good, I want to actually read the whole thing. I'll try to make it quick. Okay. So this is verses 1 through uh, 14. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the second year of their going out from the land of Egypt in the first month, saying, Let the Israelites do the Passover offering at its fixed time. On the fourteenth day in this month at twilight, you shall do it at its fixed time. According to all its statutes and according to all its laws, you shall do it. And Moses spoke to the Israelites to do the Passover offering. And they did the Passover offering in the first month on the fourteenth day of the month at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai, as all that the Lord had charged Moses, thus did the Israelites do. And it happened that there were men who were defiled by human corpse, and could not do the Passover offering on that day. And they drew near before Moses and before Aaron on that day. And these men said to him, We are defiled by human corpse. Why should we be withheld from offering the Lord's sacrifice at its fixed time in the midst of the Israelites? And Moses said to them, Stand by, that I may hear what the Lord will charge you. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the Israelites, saying, Any man who may be defiled by corpse or on a distant journey of you or your generations to come and would do the Passover, Passover offering to the Lord in the second month on the fourteenth day at twilight, they shall do it. With flat cakes and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. They shall leave nothing of it till morning, and no bone shall they break in it. According to all the statutes of the Passover offering, they shall do it. And the man who is pure and was not on a journey and fails to do the Passover offering, that person shall be cut off from his kin, for he did not offer the Lord's sacrifice at its fixed time. That man will bear his punishment. And should a stranger sojourn with you and do the Passover offering to the Lord according to the statute of the Passover offering and according to its law, thus shall he do. One statute shall you have, both for the stranger and for the native of the land. Now there's a lot to say here. So to summarize what happened is, this is the literal first anniversary of the real actual Passover event. So they had the real Passover that got them out of Egypt, where the, um, you have the death of the firstborn among Egypt. 
And now we have the first anniversary of that. So this is the second Passover. Uh, the second annual Passover. And now there's a problem in that the Passover was supposed to be held on the 14th day of the first month, but some men were defiled and not able to do it on at that time. And they said, why should we be left out? Lama nigara in Hebrew. Why should we be left out? I love that word lama is, is the word why. In fact, Jesus cries out this word on the cross um, mm-hmm. well, in Ara- Aramaic. But anyway, why? It, it, that's great. Why should we be left out? And notice that this these two words lead to revelation that blesses the whole community. Mm-hmm. And it blesses the future generations. Mm-hmm. I find this so amazing because what they're allowed to do is make it up. They have a makeup day exactly one month later on the second month, the 14th day. They just get to do the whole thing the same the same way. Mm-hmm. And I find that very interesting. I learned three things from this story. One thing about God, one thing about um, uh, about living prophets, and one thing about people. So the first thing is God is a gracious God, more eager to give us than we are to ask, not wanting anyone to be left out or excluded. Mm-hmm. So then two, what do I learn about living prophets? Well, they're so I'm so glad that they had a living prophet they could go to. If they had no prophet, they would have been stuck. Like imagine if you had all the law given at Sinai and then no more prophets after that. They would have been stuck without right. a living prophet who could receive the update uh, they would have been left out. And, right. and and the third thing is, what does this say about, op, quote, opposition? I don't think that these men who were, were being oppositional, they were saying, look, what we have right now is not enough. Uh, why should we be left out? Just because there's no precedent for what had happened. Right. It was only the second yes. Passover. Yes. And so I think it's they came and asked the prophet for a solution and that's actually the strongest testimony of their faith in God and in the reality of a living prophet. They truly believed that Moses spoke to God. And that is sustaining, telling the prophet that we do not have all the answers. You need to go back and get it. That mm-hmm. is not faithless. That is literally believing that prophets speak to God and can receive these uh, things and of course we've we've talked about the faith of the Syrophoenician woman that that didn't take no for an answer and said you got to get this right mm-hmm. and I don't think that uh, look at how Moses Moses was not threatened by this um, <laughs> Jesus he, Jesus was not threatened by the Syrophoenician woman right I mean th- that's this holds up what a mutual a sense of accountability should be. And then we're going to get a similar story back in uh, later in Numbers 27. Numbers so 27. Now I'm, oh, and we're yeah. also going to get a story with that. Uh, well, we're going to see that with Joshua. Once he, right. uh, yeah, we're going to see that with Joshua when there's other people that are prophesying and Moses isn't threatened by that either. Right. I think that's just let's before get, the verse where you talk about, you know, would to God that everybody was a prophet or something like that. Right. right. Yeah. Let's go to that. I'm ready for Numbers 11 now. Let's go to Numbers 11. So in Numbers 11, um, I, I mean, Derek, you already said it, but there's a lot going on in here. And there's, uh, you know, I don't know how I want to talk about this because there's parts about leadership that I would love to talk about in conversation with uh, with 13 as well, because there's this interesting tension 
uh, between these verses. On the one hand, you have, you know, Moses as the leader of his people and you you're feeling for Moses because of what he has to deal with. And then on the other hand, you have in chapter 13 leaders from each tribe chosen, but ultimately kind of condemning their people to death with their actions. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if there's an organized way to talk about this other than talk about what we have to talk about now and then bring up numbers 11 again once we get to 13. It might be just better to do it that way. This will be, I guess, an allusion to Moses or not Moses, Numbers chapter 11, verses 24 to about 30, which is where we're going to continue this conversation. Mm-hmm. So Moses had uh, carried out. Uh, a consecration service for the 70 elders who God told him to select. That's what we see in verse 24. And we're going to get to why that whole thing happened in the first place. But uh, as God promised, he took some of the spirit that was on Moses and he placed and God placed the spirit on the 70 elders that were called to help Moses and bear the ecclesiastical load. These men prophesied, but only on this occasion, And then Joshua learned that two other men who had remained in the camp, they were prophesying. And then uh, Joshua tells on them, he he like reports this to Moses and tells them to like, stop this. Let me read these verses. This is 26 to uh, 28 in chapter 11. But Moses said to him, I love this. Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. This is why God calls Moses a humble man. A very humble man is the words that God used. The dude has no ego. Granted, he's already at a point where he's asked God to literally kill him because he's so sick of the children of Israel's nonsense. And in response to that request, God yet again provides accommodation, which in and of itself is at least a couple of whole lessons. One is that there are people that want to die because of their mental and emotional and spiritual burdens, but if provided accommodation, can continue living and can experience God's glory again, as Moses does uh, near the end of this chapter here. And uh, this is another instance where we see Moses fighting, fighting God on something regarding his own perceived inadequacy and frustration with the task he has been given. And God is again providing an accommodation to meet Moses's need that he may perform God's tasks. Uh, The second lesson is that ecclesiastical leadership is hard, and I don't feel like I personally acknowledge that enough um, on this show. Those of us in leadership know it's hard, and those of us not in leadership need to exercise a healthy amount of grace for our leaders. The expectations uh, that we as a church culture have for our leaders, those aren't really fair. And, And I'm talking about the perfection we tend to ascribe to them to the point where we can't call definitionally and functionally queerphobic policies exactly that. It's really unhealthy to not be able to talk about our leaders, um, to not be able to say that they're wrong or not be able to complain about those things or not be able to criticize them. I don't personally think any less of my leaders, but I think it's foolish to see 15 mostly white, mostly American, presumably straight men born before Jim Crow was defeated and be surprised that there's racism, misogyny, and homophobia in the church. Now, I'm not saying those things are okay. They are very much not. 
I am saying our leaders are not socialized to see people like us, and they deserve grace as they unlearn that socialization, just as the rest of us uh, deserve grace as we overcome our different sins. That don't mean we don't criticize the bigotry. Do that. That doesn't mean we got to be friends with the homophobes at church or that we got to put ourselves in abusive environments or in spaces where our mental and spiritual health are compromised. Don't do any of that. Um, I admit, I don't feel like I can speak to what grace will look like, even in just the context of dealing with ecclesiastical leaders whose rhetoric and policies harm us, except to say that we still got to see them as human beings in need of God's love and operate accordingly and appropriately. Uh, sometimes that simply means don't be a jerk about your disagreement. Sometimes that means uh, the words of Proverbs twenty five twenty one and feeding them when they're hungry. Sometimes that means the words of Leviticus 19, uh, verse 16, or Proverbs 24, by not standing by not standing idly by while their blood is shed or while they're hungry, or when they need help, or not gloating when they fail or experience harm. Uh, I'm sure there are better articulations of how to extend grace to the brethren, but I ain't got those right now. Hopefully extending grace and treating people like God's children in need of God's love is enough to help us figure that out. To get back to this story, though, Moses is more than welcoming to other people prophesying what God has put on their spirits. He's not threatened by it because he knows where they're coming from and he needs the help. Again, Moses just asked God to kill him because he was so tired of leading this group of people he was treating like crybabies at this point. Sometimes, though, it feels like members of the church are a lot like Joshua at the end of this chapter, tattling on and tut-tutting members who supposed to have a word that the prophets haven't yet received or spoken. I was literally accused just yesterday of priestcraft for selling my LDS Anti-Racism 101 course. But Moses says this is what God wants. God wants everyone to have that gift of prophecy. Would to God that all people could be prophets. Rather than seeing men as somehow stealing his glory, Moses saw them as God's blessing intended to bring more glory to God. The more people who know, obey, and teach God's word, the more the church is edified and the more God is glorified. God's got a word for a lot of folks who can see things that the brethren are not socialized to see. We got friends out there doing work similar to us who are enabling thousands to exist in Latter-day Saint spaces and contribute in meaningful ways to God's kingdom. It glorifies God. Jesus in the New Testament gently rebuked his disciples for forbidding someone from casting out devils in Jesus' name just because they didn't roll with the disciples. But Jesus said, don't forbid them for whatever is not against us is for whoever is not against us is for us. My bishop, bless his heart, is a man I got a lot of respect for. That man that man's lack of ego was apparent within seconds of meeting him, and I'm certain that's why he's in the position he's in currently. The two of us don't agree on everything, but to the man's credit, he listens, he makes an effort. I've never heard him complain. The man has at least seen how people treat me on the internet, and he still lets me serve with him. He, do he doesn't judge the quality or the genuineness of my worship or my labor. He, he, he knows that even if we don't agree, we're on the same team. Jesus understood that about the man the disciples rebuked, and Moses understood that about the elders Joshua tattled on. We're on the same team, and the more folks that got that word, the better. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I like how you brought out that there's people today that are going to have the same attitude as Joshua. They're going to embarrass the leaders of the church by exaggerating the exclusivity and the abilities of the leaders of the church. They are just 
just humans like we all are. And they're going to have a, a portion of the, the truth revealed to them. And they're going to have line upon line increasing knowledge and wisdom. But that doesn't mean they're all powerful. That doesn't mean mm-hmm. they're all knowing. That doesn't mean they can't make mistakes. Right. And we see this. We see Moses's mistakes. He makes numerous mistakes throughout this uh, this time. But there's going to be people today that and I actually think that this puts this there. There's some people, some members of the church that actually trap the leaders mm-hmm. through their own expectations. They put them on this pedestal with completely unrealistic expectations, set them up for failure by saying, like, look, they've got it all. They know everything. And, and putting so much weight on this and exaggerating, it it does them no good. It traps. I really think that the what's holding back our leaders from getting more revelation on certain issues is the people. The people won't let them. The people won't aren't ready. And... Uh, obviously, I'm not letting the leaders off the hook themselves. They need to be accountable for what they c- can do. Mm-hmm. But we have pedestalized them to the point where we can't. We won't let them admit that they're wrong. Right? Mm-hmm. We have such this culture of royalty and celebrity around them. This this idolatrous worship of them that we don't let them be human. Mm-hmm. That's got to. It's. It, I imagine. I, I. I've always wondered. Like, what if I were royalty? Like, like I'm a prince. You know, a prince in the United Kingdom. Would I like that life? No, because I can't do what I want. I, I, there's all this protocol and all this mess and all this, all this stuff, and like I'm not dealing with that. And Prince Harry isn't dealing with all that, right? And I think we've trapped the leaders of the church into such narrow, narrow, narrow roles, and um, it's it, it's it's really um, it's really bad that we won't let them. Get, admit they're wrong. We won't let them say, hey, you know what? We we need more information on this. Mm-hmm. We just, as a culture, don't do that. And that's exactly the same spirit here. And Moses rebuked Joshua saying, are you jealous on my part? Like, are you trying to, like, um, uh, I guess jealousy is the right word. Are you trying to make my pro- prophetic powers exclusive because you think that's benefiting me? No, it doesn't benefit me. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets. Mm-hmm. That is the ideal, to have a prophetic people. So that's all I want to say about Numbers 11. Okay. I think there might be one more thing I want to say about Numbers 11. Let me just have a look at the, I had. I, I do have a question for you, Derek, because uh, I do think there's something here, and I didn't have time to totally flesh it out, but I do want to ask because it's a it's a – it's a question that the text raises uh, briefly in um, verses. Let me see what verses these are. This is verses 18 through 20. Mm-hmm. But in this particular moment, God is telling Moses that um, like this is the whole thing where the Israelites are complaining about having nothing but manna to eat. So, you know, they're they're complaining about the the menu, you know, and they're just like, we want meat. What that we had meat and melons and garlic and all that stuff like we had back in Egypt. We th- we see them again complaining about their situation in the wilderness, wanting to die in the wilderness and wishing they had what they had back in Egypt. Um, and God is just, you know, fed up with them. God is about to give them what they ask for to the point where they're going to get sick of it, you know. 
And God says they are doing this because the children of Israel have rejected the Lord. But what's interesting is that you don't really see the Israelites claim to reject the Lord at any point in this story, at least not that I could tell. But what they do reject is the Lord's provision. And that does seem to be a clear rejection of the Lord. Like you don't have to claim to reject the Lord, but you can Mm -hmm. reject the Lord's provision and in so doing reject the Lord. There was a need and God filled that need and the children of Israel still complained about it. And in that way, they rejected the Mm -hmm. Lord. So I was just thinking to myself, something that I haven't gotten to sit with long enough, but I was thinking about, are there ways that we reject God's provision today? And I wanted to throw that question at you, Derek, to see if you had anything to say about it, because I had nothing. I just felt like there was something here that deserved to be mined, but I was not in a position to mine it. Yeah, I don't, I can't think of anything at the moment um except to say what their the problem is that they're tr- they're contrasting it with Egypt and the reason why they they're dissatisfied with the manna is because of all the variety of foods that they had in Egypt but there's mm-hmm. a big problem with that those goodies came with oppression right. they came with all this other mess Right. And I think that is the temptation that we will have is to like, ooh, let's just go back to the oppression because I'll get all these extra goodies with it. And that is that is the case. And I think um, people in the closet face this. Right. You get a lot of goodies by staying in the closet. Is it really worth it coming out into the wilderness, into the unknown, into the surprising and to the unexpected? At least in Egypt, they knew what was coming. Right. Every day is the same thing. In the wilderness, they don't know. Same thing with coming out of the closet. You're going to come out of the closet. It's going to be boring um, in terms of, um, well, it's not boring, but it's like you might be on a diet of manna for a long time because you don't right. get all those goodies you had back mm-hmm. when people thought you were someone you weren't. And mm-hmm. I think a similar thing happens with us. Like, do we have the courage to go out into the wilderness with the Lord, even though the the, the menu might not be what we wanted it's uh, it's in the end better than getting those goodies at the cost of not being free. Yeah. Um, let me say something about um, yeah. Let's go on to to the to twelve the, to the chapter twelve. Yes. All right. What did you this have to the... say about Miriam and Aaron and Moses? Well, what we got here is Miriam challenging Moses out of jealousy while using her disapproval of his of Moses's interracial marriage as an excuse. Zipporah, his wife, is a Kushite woman, meaning from the land of Kush, modern-day Ethiopia, making her a dark-skinned woman. There, there, there may be a conversation to be had about uh, not just Zipporah, but also Caleb and Joshua as dark-skinned descendants of Ham, taking such a prominent role in the Exodus story. There may also be more to explore there regarding using racial animus as an excuse to challenge someone's authority or credentials. Lord knows we've seen a lot of that in the past, and I've referenced that very thing with Barack Obama's presidency as a foundational part of refining my own racial identity while I was in Utah. But I want to focus instead on what's different about Miriam's actions here and why she got punished for challenging a prophet. People are going to look at this story and 
condemn any and all challenges of prophetic authority because of what happened to Miriam, appropriately and ironically being cursed with super white skin for a week. But what was Miriam's actual sin? Was it simply challenging a prophet of God? What I believe and what it looks like here is that she wasn't faithfully holding Moses accountable, but rather faithlessly expressing jealousy that pointed not to God, but to, but to herself and her own prejudices and her own insecurities. Yeah, exactly. That's the point that I think is very important to make, because if this is the only text you knew, you could very easily come away with, Miriam got cursed because she criticized a prophet. That's not what it says. Right. Right. It's It isn't merely because she criticized the prophet or or that every time you criticize the prophet, it's wrong. In this case, she is not holding the Moses accountable to any known commandment that I know of. As far as I know, mm-hmm. there's, there's nothing wrong with um, Moses taking a Cushite wife in, in marriage, right? There's, there's um, um, uh, provided that, that she's a, uh, a believer in the covenant, right? Mm-hmm. Um, anachronistically a convert, right? Uh, see, there is there is, there are prohibitions against uh, interracial marriage in in the Torah, but this is uh, this is not this is not what's going on here. I think that, um, and it uh, this fact is that this text doesn't even dwell any more de- in more any more detail about the the Cushite wife, right? To show you mm-hmm. that that's not even an issue. That's that doesn't even need to be discussed. The real issue is actually some something else. And I think that is what's going on. So, like you said, uh, they're not holding him accountable. They're doing something else. They're out of their own purposes, out of their own um, second guessing and and faithlessness, are uh, coming coming at Moses with this um, with this um, with this complaint. And it goes back to, like I said, this dermatology analogy the superficial presentation of someone with heroic faith who has the faith to hold God accountable and God's leaders accountable might look outwardly a lot like someone who is rebellious and someone who is not committed to the faith. Mm. But that's only superficially. If you have a half a second of the Spirit's influence in your life, you'll be able to real quickly tell the difference. Mm. And so I, I want to to name that I want people to to have more patience with people who are in positions like I am who say look what we're doing is is not right we do not have the complete word on this we know in part and we prophesy in part as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 there's nothing wrong with 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 naming that I think it's abusive not to allow me to say that and I will want to say now that's one danger is if you had just this story without these other stories of, of holding prophets accountable mm-hmm. it will you'll come away with this um, with this misleading impression of oh it's always wrong to criticize prophets and you'll generalize mm-hmm. you cannot generalize that I really think that um, there's a Dunning-Kruger situation happening here whereas if you know the Bible partially it's worse than if you didn't know it at all because if you know the Bible partially, you'll tap into that power, but not into the wisdom of a comprehensive understanding of everything the Lord has said about the nature of prophets in the prophetic office. And so knowing just this one text will lead you to a more harmful uh, understanding of prophets than if you didn't have any texts about prophets at all. 
I don't know if that's pretty bold, but but that's really how Dunning-Kruger works. It, your your partial knowledge inflates your confidence about the, the limited thing that you do know. Hmm. Anyway, um, let's go on to talk about uh, numbers 12 and 13. Uh, I mean, numbers uh, 13. Oh, goodness. Yep. Moses 13. Numbers, numbers 13. <laughs> I said Moses again. Goodness. Numbers 13. Let me just say real quick about numbers 13. So here's what we've got. The scouts, um, they're, they're at the promised land now, and they're saying, hey, we want to send one scout from each of the 12 tribes into the land just to see what it's like and come back and report. And so they were gone 40 days, and they came back, and they're like, uh, 10 of them said, no, it's horrible. We can't take the land. It's 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 scary. They, they make us look like grasshoppers. Mm-hmm. And two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, no, the Lord sa- says we can take it. Let's take it. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to stone uh, Joshua and Caleb. And I just want to pause here and say, we a lot of times we Disney-fy the scriptures. And we want there to be easy good guys and easy bad guys. But like real life, um, the Bible is not a children's story. There's complexity, right? And so I want to name that what you've got here is examples of horizontal hostility between the ten and those who wanted to stone um, Joshua and Caleb and then Joshua and Caleb, right? Mm -hmm. To some extent, we've got an oppressed people in fighting with one another about the best way to achieve their own freedom. That happens all the time. <laughs> that doesn't mean yeah. they're good or bad, right? Yeah. It's a it's a mix. It's it's there's gray, there's complexity. This is an example of horizontal hostility among an oppressed people. And you can't I don't want to make Joshua and Caleb into all good and the others all bad. We don't want to make Moses all good or all bad either. He does all, including when he smites the rock in, in Numbers chapter 20. He he messed it up. He messed up his own entry into the promised land. He mm-hmm. suffers the same fate as all of those rebels because he dies in the wilderness like they did, mm-hmm. never yeah. achieving the promised land. Um, Aaron also dies in the promised land. Miriam dies, I mean, in the, in the wilderness. Like all of these people, except for Joshua and Caleb, die in the wilderness. Moses shares the same fate as the people who rebelled against him, right? We have to name that. But what I really want to say is how our mistakes and our agency can change, quote, God's timing. People talk about God's timing. I, I'm t- kind of – I don't have time for people to talk about God's timing when we have our agency. And mm-hmm. God, in some sense, in the divine economy, is limited by what we're ready for or what we can handle or what we're doing. We see this in Doctrine and Covenants all the time. Right. We see this in uh, the Hebrew Bible all the time. And um, we see this here with uh, people say, oh, just trust in God's timing. Yeah, it's I don't have a problem with God. I have a problem with us. Like, I think yeah. there are human factors as to why we didn't receive revelation until 1978. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not blaming that on God. Right. Um, I'm also not blame a, that on God. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's not from God. And I think a similar thing is here. Because what happened is God says, okay, you done messed up. Um, You didn't want to take this land. Clearly, you're not ready for it. So I'm going to delay you. Now it's going to be 40 years. 
40 mm-hmm. years to match the 40 days that they were scouting in the promised land. And it gives all of the people a chance to all die off in the wilderness and only their children and Joshua and Caleb will actually enter the promised land. Mm-hmm. And so what that says is our mistakes and our agency can change God's timing. In both directions. I think the Syrophoenician woman is a good example of a jump start. Like, yeah, the gospel is eventually going to get to all the Gentiles. We see this at the end of Matthew, um, in Matthew 28, when it says, Go ye into all nations, right? That in Matthew is the time where it's opened up to the Gentiles. However, the Syrophoenician woman gets an advance, uh, a jump start on it. She says, Nope, I'm getting it now. Yeah, I know it's going to everyone, but I'm getting it now. And I think that's allowed Jesus to move up that blessing for her. And I think that is heroic faith. And the heroic, oh, let me put this one. Heroic faith moves up God's timeline and, and rebellious lack of faith delays it, right? And I think the reason why we have so many delays on, uh, on Im- the improvement of conditions for women in the church for trans folks in the church for same gender couples in the in the church a lot of none of that's on god none of it's on god show me show me show me the revelation where it's from god it's not it's it's us and we are holding back people from god's promises and delaying the timing because we're not ready that's literally what the scouts were and they were afraid the reason why they weren't ready is because they were afraid they were afraid mm-hmm. to go where god is leading them and there's so many people in the church today that are afraid to go where god is leading us now on issues of gender and gender identity and orientation god's trying to lead us there and 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 people are afraid so that's all i wanted to say about numbers 13 okay numbers do you 13. have anything on 13 so I wanted to spend some time on on the scouts for for similar reasons. I primarily wanted to talk about the fatal and damning consequences of cowardly leadership that the other ten scouts engaged in. I, I can understand their hesitance and also your hesitance to not want to label good guys and bad guys in this situation. But when I read this story, it's hard not to do that. It's hard not to feel some degree of uh, anger towards the scouts when you read this, especially when you like consider the analogs to our present day. And when I read the further information we have about this scene in Deuteronomy chapter 1, those feelings intensify. Scouting the place was Israel's idea, and God approved it, as we, as we see in uh, verse 1 in this chapter. Israel wasn't initially afraid to enter the land. They, they only wanted to know which way to go and how to deal with their enemies. The confidence was there. The commandment was there. God was going to go with them. The same God that fed them in the wilderness, brought them across the Red Sea on dry ground, slayed Pharaoh's armies, and brought them out of Egypt. That God who did all that and led them to this, led them to this land was on their side. But then we get the negative report of the scouts, named as a... Ten scouts, named as leaders of these tribes in the text, they turned the children of Israel to faithless rebellion. And I want to use this to uh, to transition into chapter 14, where we see the response of the people and of God. The fearful report predictably spread fear across the whole Israelite camp. And the whole community started, you know, weeping and wailing, crying unwarranted and faithless tears. 
Um, remember how we talked not too long ago about the Israelites having the test material and failing the test anyway because of the faithlessness. Here they, here they are making the same mistake because their leaders saw the occupants of the land of milk and honey and they got scared. And because of that, we get the Israelites lamenting that they didn't die in Egypt or in the wilderness and questioning why God would bring them out of their comfortable slavery to the promised land to die by the sword. Then they probably seal their fate with verse four as they decide to uh, appoint a new leader and go back to Egypt. So they rejected God's prophet and they rejected God's liberation, all because their leaders got scared and spread that fear to their people. Uh, again, I want to acknowledge that leadership is hard. It is hard. But this kind of thing is why I'm critical of our leaders sometimes. Their leadership has consequences for all of us. Look at what happened to both these leaders and their people because of the leader's fear and faithlessness to the God who showed them many signs and did a lot for them. Entry to the promised land was delayed a whole generation because they, for the umpteenth time, failed a test of faith. That's what I'm scared of. Like I said a few weeks back, we know enough of the character of God, and we're going to see that again with Moses in chapter 14, deferring to the character of God to get them out of trouble again. But we know enough of the character of God to know that all are alike unto God and that God is no respecter of persons, yet I feel like our unfounded bigotry, among other things, is delaying our entry into our own promised land, our ability to build Zion. I ain't trying to wait 40 more years because people believe an unfounded, undoctrinal report by our leaders that says, among other things, queer people aren't entitled to the blessings of the gospel. That has consequences for all of us. That's going to delay all of us. That's going to condemn all of us. And you could probably argue that we're already living out our condemnation, already living out our sentence. But hopefully we can lessen whatever scourge we're under currently or uh, 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 prevent the next generation from delaying further. By, by doing what the Israelites could not do and learning our lesson, learning the character of God so that the next generation doesn't face whatever we are because of our fear, because of our prejudice, because of whatever else we are living into or denying with regard to the character of God. Anyway, I think I took us all the way into 1410. Yeah. Do you want to say anything about or do you want to... Uh, continue. Um, yeah, I want to pick up where you left off in in chapter fourteen. So yeah, after they uh, the, the community was uh, attempting to stone Joshua and Caleb, mm-hmm. the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. I'm starting at verse ten, and the Lord said to Moses, "How long will this people despise me, and how long will they not trust me with all the signs that I have done in their midst? Yes, let me strike them with the plague and dispossess them, and I shall make you." a nation greater and mightier than they. Now here Moses had some interesting choices. He could have said, okay. He could <laughs> yeah. have he could have well, agreed with the Lord. This is the second but, time, by the way, God offers that. Yeah. Uh, but Moses pushed back. Moses Again, pushed back. This is like okay. the second or third time we see Moses pushing back on behalf of his people. You know... It really is disturbing that let God prevail has become a a, um, a virtual signaling. I think so many people say let God prevail, not because they actually care about letting God prevail, but because they want to signal their loyalty to the latest catchphrase that's going around, when ironically, the message of that story in Genesis is that Jacob prevailed, and didn't let God prevail and said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. 
So let's talk about this. Here, Moses didn't let God prevail. Moses said, um, and and pushed back and said, "Nope, God, this is this not this is not good." And that is heroic faith to push back even with God because they knew each other face to face, right? I think people who don't have that kind of relationship, God will not have the faith to push back, but to to have this give and take with God and say, God, I'm expecting better from you. Wow, that takes faith. And I have tapped into that faith. And and so I'm not going to quote everything, but first Moses appeals to the Lord's ego and says, look, if you do this, the Egyptians will hear about it and they'll say, oh, look, the Lord's awful. He uh, he brought them out just to, to kill them. He's no, he's no good Lord, right? He's, he's, you know, um, so appealing to that. But then if you get into verse 18, uh, 17 and 18, and Moses is still speaking here and says, and so let the Lord's power pray be great as you have spoken, saying, quote, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in kindness, bearing crime and trespass, yet he does not wholly acquit, reckoning the crime of fathers with sons with the third generation and the fourth. Forgive, pray, the crime of this people through your great kindness, and as you've, and as you have borne with this people from Egypt till now. And here Moses literally quotes from Exodus thirty-four, verses six and seven, God's own words to Moses earlier. Hmm. Right? I think we covered yeah. this when we covered Exodus. We did. Look, we did. And so Moses is literally using God's words against him, uh, <laughs> or. Uh, using God's words against God, yeah. uh, quoting them back to God, saying, look, you told me this. I am going to hold you accountable to your character. That is faith, holding people with power accountable to their uh, character mm-hmm. is the heart of the gospel, I think, mm-hmm. for me. And uh, and here we see this, and it, it works. Isn't 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 that surprising? This works. The Lord doesn't Wild. say, "How dare you oppose me? I'm the Lord." No, the Lord says, "You know what? You're right, right." And mm-hmm. the Lord said, "I have forgiven according to your word." That's the next line. The Lord <laughs> forgave wild. them because. Of so all these all these hypocrites who say which way does the prophet face the prophet faces both ways, mm-hmm. right? There's this abusive talk by, um, uh, I think it's Boyd K. Packer about which way do you face that's saying you're only supposed to, um, uh, face the people and give them God's message. You're not supposed to report back up the chain to the prophet. That is nonsense. That is abusive. That is no way to organize any kind of body. If my foot cannot tell my brain that my brain has caused my foot to jam itself into something, we've got a big problem. My brain will keep jamming my foot into something that that hurts it if there's no two-way communication about this. So here we have communication. It's a give and take. It's part of the identity formation of the people to say, hey, look, there's give and take here. And guess what? If God is willing to have have this give and take be part of it, all the more do God's prophets need to have the same character. They should not have the attitude, how dare you speak to me that way? I'm a prophet. They don't know everything. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And we see this and I'm going to jump to, to uh, the, the 27th chapter. We're going to skip over the, the Balaam's donkey thing and we're going to skip over the, the serpents. I don't have much original to say about those things other than what's said elsewhere. So, But I mm-hmm. want to get to the daughters of Zelophehad because they are some of my favorite queer heroes in the scripture. And what made them queer is they felt emboldened, despite how, however they were socialized, they felt emboldened to say, to a prophet of the Lord, we need better than what we've got. Mm-hmm. And Moses shows great character in this by saying, you know what, you're right, let me take this to the Lord. And so I love that we have the, the, um, the, the, the names. It's important to name their names. Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Tirzah. These are the five daughters of Zelophehad. And I'm not going to read it, but they, their father, Zelophehad, died. Not in, the, not in Korah's rebellion. It's very clear that just randomly died. And they went up to Moses, who apparently made himself available for this. Remember, we had all this stuff from Exodus 18 where if there were cases that too hard, it ooched it all, it, it went up the ladder to Moses. They had accountability here, and Moses made himself available to the people. And the daughters say, and I want to get their exact words because uh, it's important to, to name the, the words of women in the few places we have them in Scripture. Our father died in the wilderness, and he was not part of the community that banded together against this Lord with the community of Korah. For through his own offense he died, and he had no sons. Why should our father's name be withdrawn from the midst of his clan? Because he had no son. Give us a holding in the midst of our father's brothers. Close quote. Isn't it amazing what they did? They used the same... Um, the same verb uh, that was uh, the same Hebrew word lama, uh, why, and the same verb, uh, except instead of saying why should we be held back, it says why should our father's name be held back. And like it is so amazing. And they say, they say give us a holding. They didn't say, well, you figured it out. They, they actually said what to do. Give us an inheritance right? Give us an inheritance because otherwise they would be homeless. They would not have provisions for themselves. This is a big mess, right? They have no um, no brothers to take care of them. And Moses, oh, this is good. And Moses brought forward their case before the Lord. That's what a prophet does. So why are we conceived of as unfaithful when we do the same thing? We say, look, you got to take this to the Lord and get it right. Anyway, Moses brought forward their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, saying, Oh, this is great. Rightly do the daughters of Zelophehad speak. You shall surely give them a secure holding in the midst of their father's brothers, and you shall pass on their father's estate to them. And to the Israelites you shall speak, saying, Should a man die without having a son, you shall pass on his estate to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, you shall give his estate to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, you shall give his estate to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, you shall give his estate to his closest kin from his clan, and he shall take possession of it. And this shall be a statute of law for the Israelites as the Lord has charged Moses. Now, I want to stop and say, in the case of the um, second Passover, and in the case of the daughters of Zelophehad, in both cases, you have this people coming up with their own 
uh, challenge born out of their own experience, and they knew the Lord well enough to, to know they deserved more. They went to the Lord, and not only did they get a narrow case for their situation, they actually got binding precedent for the rest of the time that this covenant was in place, right? It wasn't just for them. We got new legislation. We got new pieces of Torah because of their initiative, isn't that beautiful? And and I, yeah. I've I went I've seen Orthodox rabbis talk about these texts, and they say, "Look, God left a piece of Torah th- there for them to discover because we we're, were co-creators, and it was so beautiful that they were graced. Like we literally got an extra Jewish holiday, Pesach Sheni, because of these men, and we literally mm-hmm. got the provision for the inheritance of women because they decided to speak up. How dare people say that I'm unfaithful because I speak up and say, and I'm I'm merely holding back God's words up to everyone and, and holding God accountable to that. It is not good for man to be alone. I'm saying God's words back to God. I'm literally doing the same thing, right? How, yeah. how dare people... Uh, you know, not not see the faith that's here, um, that I have, that we can get it right and we will get it right, and we're just held back by fear and by by misconception and by precedent. Anyway, so I want, um, yeah, we're running out of time, but I just want to name that this is <laughs> yeah. this is this is a, to me queer because they were emboldened despite everything they heard to say, you know what. We deserve better than this. And they were tapped into the Torah. They were tapped into the spirit of, of God to, to know that there's more in there for them. And they went and they they reached it and grabbed it. I want to quote from Laurel Schneider here who says, so Laurel Schneider writes, quote, The queerest stories of women in the Hebrew Bible may in fact be those about women who managed to have a voice at all women who managed to survive and or overcome with some kind of chutzpah their barrenness, widowhood, slavery, rape, virginity, abandonment, marriage, ugliness, or other signifiers of their male derivative identity, economic dependence, and status. These stories may be more queer tales in a desexualized sense than those stories, if such stories exist, that hint at female homoeroticism. And she writes this, uh, and I think it, it very much ties into uh, um, my identification of the daughters of Zilavihad as queer heroes, because they had to think queerly. They had to think outside of the box that they were given. They have, like, it, it, it's totally queer. All right. Okay, well, with that, then we'll go ahead and wrap things up. But before we do, I want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That is dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Also on Twitter and Instagram at btblds. 
And you can search for us on Facebook. Yes. And also want to give a uh, special thanks to uh, David Doyle for editing the transcripts, Stephanie Martin, Angela Carter for being a big help with the social media stuff, and also the uh, incredible team doing the work of assembling our episode outlines, including Stephanie Peterson, Mary Gavilanes, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. The outlines also include the Faithful Feminist episodes from the same week, so you can have your one-stop shop for the Come Follow Me study guides. You can find a link to the outlines in the show notes as well as the drop-down menu on our website. Same goes for the transcripts. Do we got any events or anything like that coming out? I don't have anything. Do you have anything, Derek, other than the podcast episodes that you recorded this past week? Mm, Nope, that's it. Very good. Then thank you for joining us till we meet again next week. Later. Bye-bye.